This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 137th edition of the program. Today is April 5th of 2018, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who signed up to support us, either through Patreon or PayPal this week, and we had quite a bit of people sign up after I told you guys about the new shenanigans uh, by YouTube. So this week we have Aaron Littman, Adrian Aguirre, Charles Jones, Creeps United, Danny German, David Sperduti, Dennis Avery, Dino Costi, Emily Kapil, Emily Laughlin, Erica Antillon, Eve Lee, James Sarvis, Jason, Jason Perry, Juliette Grace, Kyle Dickinson, Mary Isabel Valverde, Mark Keister, Mike Voisom, Nicholas Alexander Garcia, Raymond Chow, Rulabar, and we also had some additional contributions to our new studio effort, and that includes Mary Ellison Wilson, Milo Wadlin, Sebastian Simon, and Young Kang. And collectively, these individuals submitted about $200 more for our new studio effort. And to give you a brief update on that, we now officially have everything that we need. I did purchase a brand new camera. It does have 4K resolution. I don't necessarily know that I'll be using 4K. It depends on how easy it is for me to export and work with that high of a quality. It may be a little bit too burdensome, but certainly we'll be shooting in 1080p with 60 frames per second at least. So what we're doing with the remaining money these individuals decided to kindly donate is um, use that to purchase equipment for the new camera like memory cards, um, a tripod, um, a new field monitor for this camera. So yeah, thank you all so much. If you'd also like to support the program, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or visit patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, we've got quite a bit to go over, so let's jump into it. I'll talk about the propaganda of Sinclair Broadcasting and CNN's pro-war propaganda piece that they did with respect to Syria. We'll talk about Hillary Clinton's painfully ironic statements about the Republican Party's corruption, the brutalization of peaceful protesters in Gaza by the Israeli military, the rebellion of teachers across the country, I'll discuss an exciting announcement from Tim Canova and his bid to unseat Debbie Wasserman Schultz. We'll talk about why the EPA head Scott Pruitt is under fire for, shocker, corruption, how Connecticut Republicans decided to kill their net neutrality bill, and we'll also talk about public support for Medicare for All. So all of these topics will be covered in today's episode. I hope you guys enjoy the show. So after we learned that a U.S. soldier was killed in Syria, this prompted President Trump to do something good for the first time in a really long time. He announced that we'd be ending our role in the Syrian war and we'd be bringing the troops home. Now, do I believe what Donald Trump is saying? Not necessarily, but certainly, I mean, if he's at least considering this, that's good, and we should be encouraging him, especially now that he has a neocon warmonger like John Bolton as his national security advisor. So this is certainly a step in the right direction. He at least is inclined 
to want to bring the troops home, which is a huge improvement over his foreign policy since he's been elected. He's just been incredibly neoconservative because he has a lot of neocons advising him. However, we got a taste of how America's corporate media props up the military-industrial complex in the midst of Donald Trump's declaration that we'd be bringing the troops home, because CNN's Jake Tapper released a segment where they literally shamed Donald Trump for wanting to do the right thing. Now, to me, I feel as though this is probably one of the most brazen pro-war propaganda pieces I've seen the mainstream media do in a really long time, and uh, I'm going to show it to you and then we'll break it down. And we're back with our world lead now. A U.S. soldier was killed last week in Syria. He was on a classified mission, we're told, to kill or capture a known member of ISIS, according to the Pentagon. But now President Trump has stunned advisors by saying he wants to pull all U.S. forces out of Syria and to do so, quote, very soon. How might that affect the U.S. campaign against ISIS? CNN's Barbara Starr joins me now live from the Pentagon. And Barbara, is the president's national security team backing him on this surprise announcement? Well, Jake, there is now a national security meeting scheduled for tomorrow to discuss Syria. So far, no rush to agree with the president on any of this. CNN has learned that military plans are in the works that could send dozens of additional U.S. troops to northern Syria, defense officials say, just as President Trump was saying this. We'll be coming out of Syria like very soon. Let the other people take care of it now. The National Security Council meets Tuesday to discuss Syria and the 2,000 U.S. troops there. So far, no one is rushing to agree. All of his military advisors have said we need to leave uh, troops in Syria. The White House press secretary again trying to soften Mr. Trump's words. We want to help, but at the same time, we want other people to step up and put a little skin in the game. President Trump also has frozen $200 million in recovery funds for Syria for restoring water, power and roads. An early U.S. pullout will only benefit Iran and Russia, skeptics warn. Russia also wants to keep their foothold in the Middle East, and the, the only one that they have right now is really through Syria, so they don't want to give that up. And Iran could then achieve its goal, a trade route from Tehran to Damascus. It'd be the single worst decision the president could make. And if the president goes against Defense Secretary James Mattis and General Joseph Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, I think it's too early to say that, you know, this is the litmus test, that if it doesn't go their way, they walk. But I do think it's going to be very interesting to see what their advice is and, and the degree to which it's being followed. Now, Jake, I've talked to at least a dozen officials, and so far, I haven't found anybody who agrees with the president that it's time to get out of Syria. Jake? Barbara Starr, thank you so much. Uh, Senator Maisie Hirono, Democrat of Hawaii, joins me now live from Honolulu. Sen Senator, thanks so much for joining us. W what do you think? Should President Trump Aloha. pull U.S. troops out of Syria? This is yet another example of uh, the president's incoherence, and uh, it's clear that he thrives in chaos. We haven't heard from General Dunford. We haven't heard from General Mattis. And uh, yet, uh, this is this is really on a par with the, the kind of incoherence that the president exemplifies uh, on a daily basis. And I think in this instance, he's again uh, reacting to what's happening with the Mueller investigation that threatens to close in on him and his associates every day. I just remember a lot of Republicans being very critical of President Obama when he announced uh, a, a date certain to start withdrawing U.S. troops 
from Afghanistan, and the argument was, well, all the enemy has yes. to do is just wait out uh, President Obama, and then they can start taking over again. Yes. Uh, obviously, ultimately, uh, President uh, Obama left troops in Afghanistan around 9,000 or 10,000. Uh, do you have those same concerns about this announcement from President Trump? I know that this announcement was, yet again, shoot from the hip. And in the Middle East, it's very dangerous to shoot from the hip, you know, going in, coming out. We need to be very clear about what our goals are, and we haven't gotten that from uh, this administration nor this president. So what does winning look like? What does leaving Syria look like? The entire Middle East is uh, very complicated, and we should understand what's going to happen and what the consequences may be before we shoot from the hip. And unlike the president, the rest of us uh, do not shoot from the hip. That would be totally irresponsible. And and it would not support our national security interests at all, in my view. So there's a lot going on there in that segment. First of all, I want to look at the framing. The whole framing of this issue was that Donald Trump shocked his advisors for wanting to abruptly pull out of Syria. Well, do I believe that his advisors are shocked? Yes, I do. But they shouldn't be that shocked because this was Donald Trump's initial position on the campaign trail. I think that they were just shocked because... They weren't able to control what Donald Trump is doing because Donald Trump obviously has been a puppet of the neoconservatives in the deep state who's been running his administration. So I get that they're shocked. They thought that maybe they had better control over him. But I mean, if you're shocked that this is his position and what he wants, then maybe you just weren't paying attention. Now, second of all, think about the way that Jake Tapper framed it. He's worried about how this might affect the United States' campaign against ISIS. So from the beginning of this segment, the implication is that this is a bad decision. If we want to pull out of Syria, that's bad. Because we are unilaterally disarming in the fight against ISIS. That's the overall implication. He didn't explicitly say this, but he's trying to prime you to think about it this way. Now, second of all, he brought on Barbara Starr, who made a fool of herself during the Abu Ghraib scandal when pictures were released of our military torturing prisoners. Now, she was more outraged at the time that someone violated military policy and took these pictures to begin with, rather than being outraged at the fact that we were torturing people. And even though she's supposed to be a correspondent to the Pentagon for CNN, the late Michael Hastings actually described her as a spokesperson for the Pentagon because she is someone who consistently does pro-war propaganda. She does propaganda for the Pentagon. So her presence here kind of gives you a hint as to where Jake Tapper wanted to go with this segment. Now, they talked about how nobody in his administration really agrees with this move. They played a clip from infamous warmonger Lindsey Graham, who would invade Canada if you let him, and everything down to the framing was troubling. And when Barbara Starr talked about how pulling out would only benefit Iran and Russia, there was a really big pause before she said the words, skeptics warn, to suggest that it's a fact that Russia and Iran would benefit from this. Early U.S. pullout will only benefit Iran and Russia, skeptics warn. And one of the biggest points made in this segment was that we shouldn't bring the troops home, we should keep them in Syria because if we bring them home, then Iran might get what it finally wants. They want a trade route from Tehran to Damascus. Now, ask yourself this. Would a trade route from Tehran to Damascus affect you in any way whatsoever? No, it wouldn't. Why should we continue to spend $11.5 million every single day on a war that has nothing to do with us when Flint, Michigan still does not have clean drinking water? How would a trade route from Iran 
to Syria affect you in any way whatsoever? How would Russia and Syria and Iran having more influence affect normal everyday Americans? It wouldn't. And Barbara Starr's implication is that since no top-level White House official agrees with the president, well, then it must be an inherently bad idea. So, because all of the warmongers in Donald Trump's administration don't think this is a good idea, then it's just an inherently bad idea? Really? So, I mean, overall, they want you to think that this is a bad idea, and they're subtly trying to get you to think that this is bad by a lot of implications and innuendo. Now, also, I want to talk about how Jake Tapper brought on Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono. Now, notice that when he asked her if withdrawing was a good idea or not, she wouldn't give him a straight answer as to whether or not we should pull the troops out of Syria. This is yet another example of uh, the president's incoherence, and uh, it's clear that he thrives in chaos. Now, the answer is simple. It's an unequivocal yes. When somebody asks you whether or not we should bring the troops home, you answer yes if you're a Democrat. But instead, she did this little tap dance around the question because she didn't want to come out and just say that she supports war in Syria because she knows that Democrats are supposed to be the anti-war party. So what does she do? She basically implies that she's reserving her judgment until she hears from generals. But ultimately, she takes a stand against Trump here, again, when he's trying to do the right thing, and she criticized Donald Trump and called him incoherent when he wanted to do the right thing. That might be the millionth example of a Democrat resisting Donald Trump from the right. You have to be against Donald Trump no matter what. So you resist him even if it's from the right. And Maisie somehow found a way to tie what Donald Trump wants here to the Mueller investigation. How the fuck does wanting to bring troops home from Syria have anything to do with Mueller? Wouldn't it be the case that if Donald Trump wants to distract us from the Mueller investigation, he would start more wars because that's an even bigger distraction? I mean, your logic makes no sense here. Again, she's resisting Donald Trump from the right. Now, going back to Jake Tapper, he actually made the point that Republicans made when Obama was in office about how if ISIS wants to reemerge, they only have to wait until we elect the next president, and then they'll just take over again. But what Maisie should have said here in response to Jake is that the premise of that question is inherently flawed, because if you take that argument and you extend it to its logical conclusion, then we should invade every country ever to make sure that no militant group ever emerges or reemerges. So we should just occupy every country in the world and then we can guarantee that ISIS or any group will never emerge. And again, it just, it drives me nuts that at a time when Donald Trump has John Bolton as his national security advisor, Democrats are essentially encouraging him to be even more hawkish. The mainstream corporate media is encouraging him to be even more hawkish. And let me ask you this, we have 2,000 American troops in Syria right now. Do you remember Congress voting to approve this war? Because I certainly don't. So not only are we not authorized to be there because Congress did not authorize this war, but we're there when we have no business being there. What goes on in Syria does not affect us. Now, if you are going to cover this issue in a non-propagandist way, you tell the American people about how much it costs to be in Syria. We're spending $11.5 million per day. That's more than $4 billion per year fighting a war that doesn't concern us whatsoever. You tell the American people the truth about ISIS and that they've been nearly wiped out. Why would we stay there so we can overthrow Assad only to fight the next group of militants that rise to prominence due to the vacuum that we create by taking him out in the first place? You have to tell the American people the 
truth about these sort of things. You have to tell them that we're technically fighting both sides of the war. We're against ISIS, but we're also against Assad who's fighting ISIS. So we shouldn't be there. And if the question is posed to you whether or not we should withdraw, certainly if you're part of the anti-war party, the Democrats, you say, yes, we should withdraw. Now, this segment is incredibly problematic, but it's just a microcosm of the broader issue with the mainstream corporate media, because this has a really strong effect on the American people. And to show you how that's the case, in 2013, a majority of Americans actually opposed military action in Syria, such as missile strikes. But in 2017, 51% supported Donald Trump's illegal strikes on a Syrian airfield, according to a HuffPost and YouGov survey. And that's the disastrous effect that war propaganda has on the American people. If you beat citizens over the head with this certain narrative, with this pro-war narrative, over a time, you can manufacture a consensus for what the government wants. Now, ask yourself this, CNN, as a corporate media outlet, what do they have to gain by us staying in Syria? And the answer is simple, money. Their advertisers are defense contractors, Boeing, Lockheed Martin. So if they speak out against the war, if they actually cover this in an objective way, what would happen? Well, they would upset their uh, defense contractor advertisers. Boeing would pull out. Lockheed Martin would pull out. So that's why they cover this in a pro-war way. They try to imply that pulling out is a bad decision, inherently so. And they try to make it seem as though they're being neutral and that they're reporting on this objectively when they're not doing that. If they were reporting on this objectively, they would tell you the cost of war, the real cost of war, both monetarily and in terms of human life. But they don't do that because they care more about money than bloodshed. And that's why we have to be extremely cautious when we tune into mainstream media because you might be getting a false narrative, a propaganda pro-war narrative, and you don't even know it. Those of you concerned with the propaganda we see in corporate media were probably alarmed by a now viral video released by Deadspin that's basically a compilation of local broadcasters who are owned by Sinclair Broadcasting, which is a very right-wing company, parroting these same scripted lines, ironically, about bias in the mainstream media. Now, Sinclair never really has been a company that hides their right-wing bias, although it is the case that they certainly deny it publicly. But this video shows the exact fear that a lot of us had with the control of corporate entities over local media. So I'll show you the clip and then we'll discuss a little bit more about it uh, when we return. Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is to, to serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we are concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible one-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. 
exist. Unfortunately, some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda to control exactly what people think. And this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 Now that to me, when I saw this, I was I was taken aback. I watched this video numerous times now in preparation for the segment, and this really feels like we are living in George Orwell's 1984. To see all of these local news anchors parrot the same exact script, it's troubling because Sinclair, I mean, many of its executives are right-wingers. So if they have a script that they want local news anchors to read to you, then those local news anchors... They really have no choice. They have to read you that script. Now, the thing about local news is that Sinclair Broadcasting, as they expand their reach, they are changing the face of local news media. Now, I don't believe that these news anchors got into journalism to simply be stooges for their corporate overlords at Sinclair Broadcasting. So the question is, why wouldn't you quit? And the answer is that Sinclair has a stronghold on them. And when I say they have a stronghold on them, I mean legally. So as Bloomberg explains, the short answer as to why these news anchors can't quit is because the cost may be too steep. According to copies of two employment contracts reviewed by Bloomberg, some Sinclair employees were subject to a liquidated damages clause for leaving before the term of their agreement was up, one that requires they pay as much as 40% of their annual compensation to the company. While they were also subject to a six-month non-compete clause and forced arbitration, three current and former Sinclair employees said it was the potential financial penalty that had the greatest impact on those thinking of quitting. And even if you're a Sinclair employee and your contract is nearing its end, finding a new job is really difficult. And certainly finding a job specifically in media, which is, you know, presumably their passion, it's probably even more difficult. So they're kind of stuck and they're forced to recite whatever their corporate overlords at Sinclair wants. Now, what's funny to me is that mainstream media news outlets, corporate media outlets like CNN and MSNBC, they're being incredibly pretentious about this. They're on their high horse saying that this is really problematic for democracy. It's troubling. It's not journalism. But you guys essentially do the same thing. You may not read scripted lines from, you know, executives at CNN and MSNBC and at Fox News as well, of course, but we all know that you refuse to cover certain topics because you don't want to offend your corporate advertisers. So it may be a different bias, but it's still biased nonetheless. Now, the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, who lambasts fake news on a daily basis, decided to 
come to the defense of Sinclair, saying, So funny to watch fake news networks. Among the most dishonest groups of people I have ever dealt with criticize Sinclair Broadcasting for being biased. Sinclair is far superior to CNN and even more fake NBC, which is a total joke. Now, I agree that it is hypocritical for CNN and MSNBC to criticize Sinclair. Fox News has been relatively silent because Fox News obviously has a right-wing bias, so they have no (laughs) real reason to criticize Sinclair, but it's funny that Donald Trump is the one who's saying this about CNN and calling them hypocrites, because if you purport to care about news media being unbiased, then wouldn't you not defend Sinclair? Well, of course not, because Donald Trump, what he considers fake news is any and all shows in the mainstream media that criticize him, so he's not actually someone who's concerned about objectivity or even neutrality in news reporting. He just wants people to give him favorable coverage. So anyone who gives him negative coverage, he considers fake news. And furthermore, there's a very specific reason why Donald Trump is coming to the defense of Sinclair Broadcasting when clearly they are biased. It's because back in 2016, when Donald Trump was still running to be president, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, actually admitted that they signed a deal with Sinclair to give Donald Trump more favorable coverage. So according to Josh Dossie and Hottest Gold of Politico, Donald Trump's campaign struck a deal with Sinclair Broadcast Group during the campaign to try and secure better media coverage, his son-in-law Jared Kushner told business executives Friday in Manhattan. In exchange, Sinclair would broadcast their Trump interviews across the country without commentary, Kushner said. But Sinclair and other networks said such a deal is nothing nefarious or new, just an arrangement for extended sit-down interviews with both candidates, one many campaigns have done in previous years to get around the national media and directly to viewers in key states. I think news should be objective. They should report the objective facts, but they're not doing this. And by forming this deal, certainly that biases Sinclair's coverage of Donald Trump. Now, Sinclair Broadcasting, you know, it's really no surprise that they are a right-wing company. A lot of us have known this previously, but a lot more people are finding out just how biased they are, and they have a history of being a biased right-wing company. As Alex Kaplan of Media Matters explains, Sinclair and its affiliates have a history of airing conservative-leaning reporting and commentary, and its executives have donated to Republicans and Republican causes. The company also has ties to President Donald Trump and his administration, covered him very favorably during his presidential campaign, and hired one of his former aides as an analyst. And in a meta-analysis regarding coverage of Sinclair, Kaplan explains how a Washington local news affiliate, once it was purchased by Sinclair Broadcasting, well, this affiliate, WJLA-TV, took a subtle but noticeable turn to the right. The Post added that Sinclair's stations have been used to attack Democratic candidates or to boost Republicans, and according to a 2017 article from the New York Times, they became noticeably more right-wing during the Bush years by refusing to broadcast a Nightline documentary that listed the names of American soldiers killed in action in Bush's Iraq War, and they also aired segments from a documentary that criticized John Kerry for protesting the Vietnam War when he was younger, and they also refused to air audio evidence that Montanan Republican candidate Greg Gianforte body-slammed a journalist, and this is perhaps because a Sinclair executive literally contributed to his campaign. Now, there's also been numerous reports about Sinclair executives generally just being pro-Trump. So make no mistake about it, this is a right-wing company, and even though they deny that they are biased in favor of Republicans, well, I mean, they really don't do that good of a job 
hiding their bias. Now, to make matters worse, Ajit Pai, FCC chairman, you might have heard of him, he repealed net neutrality against the overwhelming majority of the American people. Well, he went to great lengths to actually expand the reach of Sinclair by making regulatory changes that specifically benefit Sinclair. And in fact, he was so brazen in assisting Sinclair that he's now under investigation by internal watchdogs within the FCC for corruption and potential collusion with Sinclair. As the New York Times' Cecilia King reports, last April, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai, led the charge for his agency to approve rules allowing television broadcasters to greatly increase the number of stations they own. A few weeks later, Sinclair Broadcasting announced a blockbuster $3.9 billion deal to buy Tribune Media, a deal those new rules made possible. By the end of the year, in a previously undisclosed move, the top internal watchdog for the FCC opened an investigation into whether Mr. Pai and his aides had improperly pushed for the rule changes and whether they had timed them to benefit Sinclair, according to representatives Frank Pallone of New Jersey and two congressional aides. Now, why is it that Ajit Pai, a Republican, would do everything in his power to make regulatory changes that allow Sinclair Broadcasting to buy uh, Tribune Media and expand their reach? Well, it's of course because Sinclair provides Republicans and right-wingers with favorable coverage. So why wouldn't the Republican Party come to their defense like Donald Trump did? Why wouldn't they make regulatory changes to help expand the reach of Sinclair when Sinclair does the bidding of the Republican Party because its executives are right-wingers who not only donate to Republican causes and the Republican Party directly, but they're just generally pro-Republican and pro-Trump. So this is the problem. When you have corporate-owned media, this is what we get. So it's no shocker that we see Orwellian news segments where news anchors are simply reading scripts provided to them by rich right-wingers who are the executives of the company that owns them, owns who they work for. It's no surprise. This is what you get. And it's incredibly frustrating, and there's not much we can really do in the short term But what we can do as citizens, as responsible citizens, is arm ourselves with knowledge and know what the agenda is of each of these companies that own the media outlets that we see. Because if they own the media outlets that we see, they control the narrative, and by proxy, they control how we view the news and political issues. So certainly, stay vigilant and know what you're watching when you tune in to media you see on TV. So recently, thousands of Palestinian protesters gathered for the annual March of the Great Return, where they protest Israel's illegal occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Now, this took a turn for the worse. It got incredibly violent. And when I say it got incredibly violent, I mean the Israeli military brutalized peaceful protesters and ended up killing multiple people. So this Common Dreams headline pretty much sums it up really well. As March of Great Return begins, Israeli forces gun down Palestinian protesters along Gaza border. Israeli snipers killed at least 15 Palestinians and injured hundreds more as an estimated 20,000 gathered along the Gaza-Israel border for the launch of the six-week March of Great Return on Friday. Now a bit of clarification. Since this article was published, the death count has actually risen to 17. And come to find out, there are now reports that Israel shot as many as seven hundred protesters, 700 peaceful protesters. 
So as Jessica Corbett of Common Dreams reports, the beginning of the march coincides with the 42nd anniversary of Land Day, when Palestinians worldwide commemorate six who were killed by Israeli forces for protesting settlements in 1976. Ahead of the demonstrations, Gadi Eisenkot, chief of general staff of the Israel Defense Forces, gave soldiers permission to open fire on mass demonstrations in the event of mortal danger and announced that Israeli forces would deploy more than 100 snipers. The instructions are to use a lot of force, Eisenkot told the Israeli newspaper Yedioth Aranoth. Organizers of the protesters, meanwhile, have encouraged marchers to remain nonviolent, and according to the Mon News Agency, dozens of signs have been set up across the border in Arabic, Hebrew, and English, saying we are not here to fight, we are here to return to our lands. Palestinian protesters have set up tents along the border, and demonstrations are slated to continue through May 15th, Reuters reports, the day the Palestinians called the Nakba, or catastrophe, marking the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in the conflict surrounding the creation of Israel in 1948. And May 15th also happens to be the day that the United States will be opening their embassy in Israel, which further fans the flames. So, this is absolutely unacceptable, and as usual, Israel is basically alleging that this was justified because they weren't peaceful after all. So the Israeli government released a video showing men with assault rifles trying to break Israel's fence, and one person was actually shot while running away with a car tire. Now, they claim that shooting someone in the back while they were running away with a car tire was justified because oftentimes protesters will light car tires on fire and roll them towards the Israeli military. Now, was that person actually planning to do that? we don't know was the car tire on fire no they were shot in the back as they were running away now additionally they claim that there were two men with assault rifles who were trying to break israel's fence and a lot of people are actually taking israel's side because a few people out of the thousands upon thousands were menaces and additionally hamas is claiming that five of the six protesters who were killed were actually hamas members that decided to participate in the protest so that may have been two of the men that israel claimed were armed but regular civilians the overwhelming majority of which were peaceful were not armed. And let me remind you that out of tens of thousands of people protesting, there were just a few that were even remotely antagonistic. So there's a lot of people defending Israel because as usual, media coverage of this is incredibly biased. Uh, I believe it was Adam Johnson of FAIR who reported how NPR even covered this in a very biased way. They claimed that there was a violent clash, which implies that both sides were to blame, but in actuality, Israel was brutal here. They decided to kill protesters who were walking away from them. They decided to shoot a protester who was walking towards the fence. They shot someone who was praying, literally. And again, they shot over 700 people. This was a peaceful protest. So even if there were a couple of bad apples in the bunch, you can't tell me that by and large, this was a violent protest. But that's how Israel is depicting this event. Now, if you're still taking Israel's side here and you think that their response was proportional, well, there's actually a video floating around that shows you why the IDF shot one Palestinian protester. It's clear as day. Now, Twitter user Christian Tribert compiled three different angles showing a Palestinian protester being shot who was just simply walking towards Israel's border. He was not armed, but yet he was shot. Do you think they were justified in shooting an unarmed protester? 
If you think that that protester is wrong for trying to antagonize Israeli defense forces and walking towards the border, do you think that the proportional response here is to shoot him? Do you think that shooting someone who was praying was justified? So clearly, as usual, Israel is not allowing Palestinians to protest. I mean, we see the same type of response in the United States towards the BDS movement. This is a peaceful protest that encourages a boycott, divestment, and sanctions on Israel, but yet anyone who does this is penalized. There are some lawmakers who are literally trying to make it illegal to support the BDS movement. So if you're a Palestinian, they try to depict you as a savage. They try to claim that you're overly violent, but when you actually do participate in a peaceful protest, well, they'll still lie anyway and tell you that you were being violent. They'll still say that this was a riot. It wasn't a protest. That's what the Israeli government is maintaining. And really, you just, you're not allowed to speak up. You're not allowed to speak up for your rights. You're not allowed to speak out against Israel's illegal occupation if you're Palestinian. So, Bernie Sanders was, I believe, the only U.S. senator at the time I'm recording this that chose to speak out against what Israel did. And this is what he had to say. You tweeted about this yesterday. You wrote, quote, the killing of Palestinian demonstrators by Israeli forces in Gaza is tragic. It is the right of all people to protest for a better future without a violent response, unquote. The Israeli government uh, called the protests, quote, violent terror demonstrations. The ambassador of Israel to the United Nations said Hamas fighters were interspersed throughout the crowd using human shields and were killed after making, quote, direct attacks on Israeli positions. Do you not accept the Israeli government's explanation? No, I don't. Uh, I think from what my understanding is, is you have tens and tens of thousands of people who are engaged in a nonviolent protest. Uh, I believe now 15 or 20 people, uh, Palestinians have been killed and, and many, many others have been wounded. So I think it's a difficult situation Uh, But my assessment is that Israel overreacted on that. But again, the bottom line here is that the United States of America has got to be involved in dealing with the terrible tragedy in Gaza. You know, whether it is Syria, whether it's Yemen, whether it is Gaza, we're looking at the need for the international community led by the United States to deal with that situation. Gaza is a disaster right now. Youth unemployment is off the charts. And we're going to continue to see those kinds of demonstrations and protests unless the world community recognizes the problem in Gaza and brings the Israelis and the Palestinians together to start addressing those problems. So I'm glad that Bernie Sanders is taking a strong stand here and he's condemning what the Israeli government is maintaining because they're just lying at this point. And you really don't see a lot about this. Even a lot of activists who are progressive don't speak out. And there was a great piece in The Intercept by Mehdi Hassan who basically coined the term PEP, progressive except for Palestine, because there's a lot of progressives who economically, they are progressive, they check all the boxes, Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, but they won't really speak out against Israel's war crimes and the brutalization of peaceful protesters like we see here, clearly. And is this the first time that peaceful protesters have been brutalized for uh, during the March for Great Return? No, it's not. And yet progressives like Elizabeth Warren, they don't really speak out. Now, if I'm wrong, I'll give you an update at the bottom of the screen with her statement. Um, any other progressives? Jeff Merkley going to speak out? Never. It's never the case that they speak out against what Israel is doing. It's because they're progressive on every issue with the exception of Palestine. Now, Bernie Sanders, he's not necessarily exempt from this because 
He's been pretty bad on the issue as well. He doesn't support BDS. In fact, during a 2014 town hall when Israel was bombing Gaza and they killed hundreds of civilians, his response was that Israel has the right to defend itself. So certainly, we've dragged Bernie along to the correct position, but this is going to continue to happen unless the United States, an ally of Israel who has a lot of sway and influence over what the Israeli government does takes a strong stand, but we're rewarding them. We are opening our embassy in Jerusalem, rewarding them. So unless the United States tells them to stop, this will continue. Myself and other progressives have long maintained that Scott Pruitt is someone who should not be anywhere near the Environmental Protection Agency because he's too close to lobbyists. He doesn't even believe in climate change. He literally sued the EPA when they tried to impose new regulations on the fossil fuel industry. So this is an individual that's just brazenly corrupt. He shouldn't be the EPA head. But in a surprising turn of events, there are now Republicans who are calling on him to resign amid a growing corruption scandal. So Representative Carlos Corbello tweeted out, major policy differences aside, Scott Pruitt's corruption scandals are an embarrassment to the administration and his conduct is grossly disrespectful to American taxpayers. It's time for him to resign or for POTUS to dismiss him. And the other Republican to call for his resignation is Ileana Ross Leitonen, who states, when scandals and distractions overtake a public servant's ability to function effectively, another person should fill that role. So the question is, what exactly did he do that makes him seemingly even more corrupt than he already was? Because, I mean, it's never really been a secret that Scott Pruitt is corrupt, so why are they only calling for him to resign now? Well, according to the Huffington Post, Pruitt's housing in Washington came under scrutiny last week after ABC News reported that he rented a room in a luxury condominium co-owned by the wife of a top gas industry lobbyist. Pruitt paid $50 per night, a sweetheart deal well below the market rate for an upscale Capitol Hill townhouse. The EPA's Office of General Counsel quickly issued a memo endorsing the rate, but the agency's ethics lawyer struggled to defend Pruitt's adult daughter's use of another room at the residence. The controversy comes after months of criticism over Pruitt's spending on first-class flights and luxury hotels, including $2,600 in airfare to Oklahoma, a $120,000 trip to Italy, and a $40,000 visit to Morocco to promote liquefied natural gas, a questionable responsibility for an EPA administrator to take on. So people like myself were concerned that Scott Pruitt was just way too close to the industry, but now we're learning how close he is to the industry. He's so close to the industry that he's literally living with them. So needless to say, that is a conflict of interest so brazen that you can't describe that as anything else other than corruption. And that's why some Republicans are choosing to finally speak out against him. So if you've known anything about Scott Pruitt, this news is not surprising. And what I'm actually surprised about is the fact that any Republicans decided to call on him to resign. And for someone who's supposed to protect the environment, what he's doing, it's purely the result of corruption. The question is, since Scott Pruitt is receiving pressure to resign, will Donald Trump, in fact, fire him? Well, even though the White House is reportedly against his brazen corruption, Pruitt will not be fired because according to USA Today, Trump himself reached out to Pruitt Monday night, telling the EPA chief to keep your head up, keep fighting, and we've got your back, according to an administration official who asked to remain anonymous because he was not authorized to speak on the record. 
record. And White House Chief of Staff John Kelly called Pruitt Tuesday morning to reinforce the president's message, the official said. So President Donald Trump is, in fact, shielding Scott Pruitt even though he is now being brazenly corrupt, and surprise, surprise, Donald Trump is corrupt himself. So, of course, he's going to protect someone who's also corrupt. And there's always the question as to whether or not, you know, if he's if he's gone, then who's going to replace him? Will we get someone worse? Well, I don't know that we're going to get anyone worse than Scott Pruitt, honestly. He really is the worst-case scenario, and certainly I'll eat my own words if Donald Trump put someone worse in charge of the EPA, but I don't really think we're going to get anyone as bad as Scott Pruitt. Certainly, we're going to get another fossil fuel shill, but I mean, really, Scott Pruitt is as bad as it gets when it comes to policy with regard to the environment. I mean, this is someone who sued, who teamed up with the fossil fuel industry to sue the EPA, and now he's the leader of that organization. He's the worst case scenario, so yeah, I I think he's got to go. About a month ago in the state of West Virginia, there was a teacher strike in all 55 counties. They demanded fair wages and they also protested cuts to education spending. And guess what happened ultimately? They won. The state actually caved to their demands because they were persistent. And now that the teachers in West Virginia were successful, we're starting to see teachers rebel across the country in different states. So this week, teachers in Oklahoma decided to take a stand. As NBC News reports, more than a thousand Oklahoma teachers wearing red shirts and carrying signs swarmed the state capitol building on Tuesday to demand higher wages and more funding for education. And one of the teachers interviewed said that she would be on food stamps if it weren't for the second job that she has. Now, the fact that teachers are forced to take on second jobs in the first place is just, it's absurd to me. It is. It's absurd. It shouldn't happen. But even though teachers are taking on second jobs, well, state governments are still trying to cut education even more. And when you cut education, you cut the wages of teachers. Because if you don't give them cost of living raises at a minimum, well, then as inflation increases, they're getting a pay decrease. Now, it's not just Oklahoma. Because teachers in the state of Kentucky actually had a bigger protest where 5,000 swarmed the state capitol. As Travis Waldron of HuffPost reports, thousands of teachers and public workers from across Kentucky flocked to the state capitol on Monday morning to protest potential budget cuts to public education and the passage last week of a controversial package of changes to the state's public pension system that teachers had opposed. The rally began before 9 a.m. outside the Kentucky Education Association building, just blocks from the capitol complex. Teachers, most of them clad in red as part of the grassroots Wear Red for Ed campaign, later marched to the state capitol itself, filling up rotund to outside legislative chambers and spilling out the front doors and down the steps. Enough is enough, they chanted, many of them carrying signs telling lawmakers to fully fund their pension and their schools and threatening that if legislators failed to do so, the teachers would do everything in their power to remove them from office and elections this November. We feel demoralized, we feel assaulted, and we feel like we've been marginalized, said Chris Walder, a teacher at Anderson County High School in Lawrenceburg. We're angry. Teachers have filled the Capitol complex off and on for more than a month in an effort to derail pension changes and education budget cuts proposed by Republican Governor Matt Bevin and Republican Majority Leaders in both chambers of Congress. But their anger boiled over Thursday night when GOP lawmakers attached a slate of pension changes to a previously unrelated bill meant to address public sewage issues. Hours later, both the State House and the State Senate approved the measures on party-line votes. 
The pension bill, which Bevin is expected to sign before the legislative session ends this week, did not contain some provisions teachers had been most angry about, including a cap on annual cost of living adjustments. It also does not cut benefits for current teachers, but it switches new hires to a hybrid 401k-style plan and ends some contractual protections that currently prohibit lawmakers from altering pension benefits for public workers, teachers included. Those changes, teachers said, would make it hard for the state to recruit new educators in Kentucky, which already have a struggling public education system. Even before Monday's rally, teachers forced public schools to close in at least 25 Kentucky counties on Friday when they called in sick en masse to protest the pension plan. In Lexington, the state's second-largest school district, more than one-third of school employees stayed out Friday in Louisville. The absences forced the closures of Kentucky's largest school district. So this is incredibly inspirational. I love how this protest is spreading. It started in West Virginia, and it's now moving to Oklahoma and Kentucky. Now, going back to Kentucky, when you look at this tweet put out by KY Policy, you can see how cuts to education have been especially brutal recently. And in 2020, I mean, when you compare that to education spending in 2008 and 2009, which is already low, you can see just how much the government of the state of Kentucky is trying to cut spending on education, and it's unacceptable. I'm just tired of getting bullied, and uh, we want to change, and we want our presence to be known. It's not just for me, and it's not just for these teachers you hear here, but it's for the kids of the future. It's for my grandkids. It's for the future of our state, and you need to make it right now. My kids are the future, and um, I can't have their education taken away from them like that. If there's no teachers, there's nobody to teach my kids. Big business is not going to care more about your kids than we do. And we are here fighting for our kids so that they can have the best education. The majority of the people are here because of the students. We do care about what's happened with our retirement and insurance and other uh, aspects of how it personally affects us. But one of the biggest things is we need to be concerned about public education. Tell me the, the decision making behind this, what I think is the sign of the day. Well, um, I believe that every true Kentucky fan really hates Leitner, but now we have someone that we can hate just a little bit more. But if you had to pick a worst of the bunch, is there one you have in mind? Not including Bevin? No, including Including, uh, well right now I would say everybody would be pointing to him. He is, he's probably pulled in front of Leitner. So you hear that Bevin has moved ahead of Leitner in the most hated group today. <laughs> and that is a very distinct uh, prop you brought. What made you decide to include it? Well, I believe it's self-explanatory. Uh, the people are speaking right now. They may be voting right in there, but we're going to vote in November. Our schools in eastern Kentucky are going to be really hurt with all the cuts because they want these cuts that they make, that Bevan makes, he wants the local boards of education to pick up them in the, in the school district, and there's no money. Please don't cut our funding. Many of us put in lots of hours after school that you don't even know about. I just don't know how to beg enough to please not cut our programming for our students. We are here representing them. They cannot speak for themselves from down where we live, but we are here for them. Our students are worth the money that we're putting into it, and we can't 
cut our students short. I'm hoping that it, they understand that our voice isn't going away and that our voice isn't something they can cut from their budget. If our funding for public schools is cut or shifted to charter schools, we are going to remember in November. So you will absolutely not hear the end of us. You can't keep cutting spending for education. You can't keep cutting teachers' pay because this is a job that's invaluable to America. I mean, they are literally molding future generations. So you have to pay them well, and you have to pay them well because you want to recruit people into this position that are qualified. But they continue to cut education. Why? Because they'd rather put that money towards charter schools. And when you compare how much we pay teachers to other countries, you can see just how little we value teachers. Countries like South Korea, Germany, England, the Netherlands, Australia, Finland, they all pay teachers a higher starting salary by far than the United States, according to McKinsey. And the U.S. is also unique in their inability to attract qualified teachers because nobody wants to take on a job where they're unable to survive. Who would want to do that? Who would want to get an education needed to be a teacher, put yourself in debt, and then never be able to get out of said debt because you're not paid a living wage? Now, as one teacher from Arizona explains, Really, the situation is a lot more dire than a lot of us knew about for teachers. What are my options? And I have a master's degree. Not one, but two master's degrees. And my test scores and data is always there. So I know we are good teachers out here. So why are we struggling to send our kids to college? Why am I struggling to live on my own? I had to move back into my parents to help pay for her college. This is my reality. But here it is, we're giving millionaires tax cuts. Right. You're going to give them $27,000. That's not even half of my salary. I can't even say that's half of my salary. It's hurtful. It makes you want to move back to whatever state you came from, or it makes you want to give up. But I'm 37 years old with two master degrees in education. What, what direction do I go in? I believe in being a teacher. I'm a teacher by heart. I shouldn't have to walk away from my career to deserve a right to live or deserve a right to take care of my family the right way. It's just hurtful. It's very, very now that story right there is why teachers are rising up and they're demanding fair wages. How can you listen to that story and not be on their side and not think that what they're fighting for is just? Now, there are right-wingers who are saying these teachers are selfish, they're only thinking about themselves, and, you know, they're not thinking about their students. But if you actually do care about students like right-wingers purport to, then you should be on the side of teachers. Because again, without teachers being able to support themselves and dedicate all of their time to their students and not have to take on second and sometimes third jobs, then you don't care about students. If you don't care about teachers, you don't care about students. So what they're doing is incredibly inspiring. And I really hope that people speak out for teachers. I hope that the mainstream media actually covers this. It seems as though we're seeing some coverage on, on MSNBC. But by and large, you know, I don't think it's going to attract the type of attention that more sensationalist stories will attract. Um, but I mean, this is this is so great. I, I'm really proud of these teachers for taking a stand. I mean, this has gone on long enough. You can only mistreat people and pay them horribly low wages for so long until they rebel. And that's what we're seeing. Actions have consequences and lawmakers across the country are going to learn that really soon.
So lately, when it comes to net neutrality, we've talked a lot about momentum states have made towards protecting net neutrality. But when it comes to the state of Connecticut, state Republicans, including this guy right here, decided to unilaterally kill all progress that they made because they decided to tank a bill that would have saved net neutrality in the state of Connecticut. So, Rhett Jones of Gizmodo reports, states around the country are considering legislation to preserve the net neutrality protections that were recently repealed by the FCC, but Connecticut won't be one of them. That's because Republican state senators there used a procedural technicality to kill one such piece of legislation in committee. Last week, Connecticut's Energy and Technology Committee took up consideration of a bill that would have given the state authority to regulate its own internet, a first step toward reinstating the type of protection against internet fast lanes that the FCC voted to destroy last year. But Senator Paul Formica, the Republican co-chairman of the committee, elected to employ a rule that ensured the bill wouldn't get a proper vote. According to the Connecticut Post, Democrats have a majority in the overall committee, but on the Senate side, it's tied. Formica used his authority to require a vote among the senators before it could be considered by the representatives in the House. The two Senate Democrats and two Senate Republicans were split along party lines, so the Republicans got their way. A tie vote meant the legislation would not be able to advance. Democratic Senator Gary Winfield told The Post that this kind of tactic was highly unusual, and he lamented the fact that the bill won't get a fair shot at an up or down vote. Senate Majority Leader Bob Duff supplied a statement to WNPR saying that states like Oregon and Washington have already passed net neutrality protections on a bipartisan basis, and that it was a shame that Senate Republicans here in Connecticut chose to stand with big business and President Trump instead of the people of our state. So, what's their excuse? What's the excuse of Paul Formica right here, who decided to unilaterally kill the state's momentum towards net neutrality and not even allow for it to be voted on? Well, their excuse is that they're being the good guys here because they're just protecting the state from future litigation because they know that since the FCC preempted states and blocked them from passing their own net neutrality laws, the state would inevitably be sued if this ever passed. So you're welcome. He's stopping you from um, doing anything. Now, is it true that the state of Connecticut would probably be sued in the event this bill were to pass? Yes. Does that mean that they should not do what they can to protect net neutrality in the short term before the SEC repeal order takes effect? No, they should be doing everything in their power to protect the interests of citizens in that state. But Republicans, specifically two Republicans and this guy who unilaterally invoked this really shady tactic decided, no, we're not even going to allow it to be voted on. You're welcome. We're protecting you from a lawsuit. So if you live in the state of Connecticut and this happened to you, this is the individual you have to thank. You should protest this. You should call his office and let him know that he will lose his job when he's up for re-election because of what he did. He is brazenly shilling for the telecom industry. Brazenly. Anyone who is against net neutrality is only against it because A, they don't know what net neutrality is or why it's important, or B, they're just shills for the industry. And this Republican in the state of Connecticut is so shamelessly bought off that he didn't even want the issue to be voted on. He used a rule to block it from a vote. See, if you feel strongly about your position on a particular policy issue and you think that you have the winning argument, you at least allow it to be debated. You allow an up or down vote on it, but 
These guys know that net neutrality is so popular that they're going to lose. They don't have an argument that's persuasive, which is why they have to resort to shady tactics like this. They have to unilaterally block it to make sure that it doesn't even get voted on. Well, that's a disgrace, and to anyone who lives in the state of Connecticut, they're not representing you. This guy specifically isn't representing you. So vote him the hell out, because what he did is a disaster. And now, when the FCC's repeal of net neutrality takes effect later this month, you're vulnerable. ISPs can throttle your internet. They can block your access to certain websites. You could thank Paul Formica for that. A new poll conducted by the Kaiser Family Foundation finds that support for Medicare for All among Americans has drastically increased. So prior to the release of this poll, it's been the case that We've seen a positive trend, and only over the course of the last couple of years have we seen some polls indicate majority support for Medicare for All. But with this poll, it shows that we've made significant progress, um, and I couldn't be happier about that. So when you look at the results here, now a strong majority of 59% support Medicare for All in the United States. And when you ask people if they want to keep a private option with Medicare for All being an option for everyone, 75% favor this system. That is huge. 75% support a private option, meaning that they want everyone in the country to have access to Medicare for All, but if they want private insurance, then they can still keep private insurance or purchase private insurance. Now, they actually contend that this is support for a public option, but I would argue otherwise because what they're really asking about is support for a private option because this is what the question states. Do you favor or oppose having a national Medicare for All plan open to anyone who wants it, but people who currently have other coverage could keep what they have? That's a private option because Medicare for All, you know, if you have that, private insurance is no longer necessary. But they're saying, well, if you want to have Medicare for all, if you want nobody to be turned on if they don't have health insurance, but still allow people to keep their existing coverage if they want to pay for it, then that's what a private option is. So really, I mean, that's huge. Even if it's actually a public option that people support, 75%, that is huge. Now, other results show that 75% of registered Democrats and 58% of independents support Medicare for all. And now 36% of Republicans favor Medicare for all. That's more than a third of Republicans. So this is the result of progressive momentum. We have absolutely monopolized this debate. There's no question about it. We are moving discussion in this country about healthcare in our direction. We're saying Medicare for all is non-negotiable. We're telling people about Medicare for all, and we're not going to take no for an answer if lawmakers refuse to get behind Medicare for all, because we shouldn't live in a country as rich as ours where people die or go bankrupt if they don't have health insurance. It shouldn't happen. This change is the result of grassroots momentum and what's really changing this discussion is, I think, a cultural shift when it comes to healthcare in this country. Because we tried incrementalist reform, we tried Obamacare, and people were still going uh, going bankrupt and dying, even with Obamacare. People who supported Obamacare, myself included, who didn't think it was the end-all be-all, thought it was a step in the right direction, you know, we were still dissatisfied because we wanted Medicare for all, and we didn't even get a 
public option. So now we're just, we're going to skip a public option and go straight for Medicare for all. No more half measures, no more incrementalism. We want Medicare for all because other countries have it and it works well. So I find this incredibly encouraging. Again, it's, I feel a little bit conflicted if I'm being honest, because I'm, I'm, I feel optimistic that this many people, 59%, that's the overwhelming majority now, support it, but it's frustrating that it took this long. And it's because we have a lot of forces working against us, not just the mainstream media, but the Democratic Party, because their health industry donors don't want them to support Medicare for all. But the more we call and encourage our representatives and senators to support Medicare for all, the more we continue to talk about this with our friends and family, the more we change culture. And if we want Medicare for all, there needs to be a culture shift. We have to make sure that we talk about this so people won't be susceptible to right-wing fear-mongering from Republicans. And it's not just Republicans. Dianne Feinstein said the same thing, that if Medicare for all constitutes a government takeover, she's not in favor of it. Well, look, we're changing the narrative. We're not going to accept this superficial uh, fear-mongering. It's so stupid. It makes my head explode. Medicare for all can and i think will one day be a reality in america but only if we fight for it if we if we start to back down if we lose momentum we're not going to get it so we have to keep a sustained level of pressure we have to be persistent in demanding that we will not take no for an answer and certainly we can't vote for lawmakers or politicians who don't support medicare for all this is the ultimate litmus test if you don't back medicare for all i don't back you and i you know, if everybody takes this hardline stance on the left, we will actually change the Democratic Party. So, uh, you know, overall, this is great news. So we had some really interesting news this week regarding the race between Tim Canova and the infamously corrupt Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So as Alex Doherty of the Miami Herald reports, Tim Canova, a liberal Nova Southeastern University law professor who raised millions in an unsuccessful Democratic primary against Debbie Wasserman Schultz in 2016, announced Monday that he will drop out of the Democratic primary for Wasserman Schultz's Broward-based district and instead run as an independent. Even as independents, we are the real Democrats in this race, Canova said at a press conference outside Broward County Election Supervisor Brenda Snipes' office. Even as we run as independents, I will run as a better Democrat. I did not leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left us. Yeah, so this is incredibly interesting news. I couldn't help but have a gigantic goofy smile on my face when I read this article just because... This is a huge middle finger that he's throwing up to Debbie Wasserman Schultz after she not only rigged the 2016 primary against Bernie Sanders, but rigged her own primary against Tim Canova in 2016. Now, you do have to understand and be realistic about this. When you run as an independent, it is a lot more difficult. It's not impossible to get elected. It's improbable, though. It's why we see so few independents in Congress. Bernie Sanders is one. Angus King is another. It's really uncommon because... Voters at the ballot box typically tend to support the two-party system because, one, they're afraid that if they cast their vote for anyone besides a Republican or Democrat, that's a wasted vote and it won't matter. And also, a lot of individuals love the idea of participating on a team, which is why they either vote for Republicans or Democrats. And there are some benefits entailed with running for a particular party, both Democrat and Republican. That includes guaranteed ballot access, voter data tools like NGP 
receive in additional funding. And that's why so many progressives across the country choose to begrudgingly run as Democrats. It's because there are a lot of benefits entailed with party membership, but at the same time, with all of those pros comes a lot of cons. I mean, by running as a Democrat, you end up legitimizing a corrupt party. You have to play by their rules. So, for example, the DCCC, they often say that, you know, if you want any money from them, you have to spend it in a certain way. If you want their support, you have to spend it on television advertisements, when in 2018, that might not be the most effective way to run a campaign. Additionally, if you don't play by their rules, they can shut you out of the process, or they can just shut you out for no reason at all. It's why we see a lot of progressives lose their access to NGP Van. It's why Debbie Wasserman Schultz cut off Tim Canova's access to NGP Van in 2016. But putting all of that aside, Looking at this individual case, do I support Tim Canova's decision to run as an independent? Absolutely. I 100% support this decision because Debbie Wasserman Schultz already showed that she's willing to play dirty. She used her power as DNC chair in 2016 to block him from accessing NGP Van. The Broward County's office, they're ignoring evidence of election fraud, destroyed ballots. They're refusing to look into that. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, this was directly Debbie Wasserman Schultz, you know, who's culpable here, although she's been known to rig elections, so maybe I am saying that. But certainly, I mean, they're not willing to give Tim Canova a fair shot in this Democratic Party primary. So what do you do if the Democratic Party is unwilling to play fair? You get dirty too. You play dirty. Now, what did Donald Trump do when the RNC was signaling that they might try to stack the deck against him in 2015? He threatened to run as an independent. And this scared them shitless. Why? Because what happens if you're a Republican who's prominent with a lot of name recognition, and you run against the Republican Party's nominee, you split the votes and you allow a Democrat to win. Now, this is what Bernie Sanders should have done, even if he wasn't actually going to run as an independent, he should have at least bluffed. Because in bluffing, at least, you get power. You tell the party, if you play dirty, I'm going to play dirty too. And by your unwillingness to play fair, you're going to ruin it for all of us because I'm going to run as an independent, split the vote, and hand the uh, election to a Republican. That's kind of what Tim Canova is doing here. Now, it's not guaranteed that he's going to hand the election to a Republican, so I don't necessarily want to frame this as vote splitting, even though that does tend to happen once in a while, but if he wants to win, it's going to be incredibly difficult for him. What I do want to see progressives do across the country is if the Democratic Party, if their state Democratic Party is going to play dirty, they need to play dirty too. They need to make these types of threats, threaten to run as an independent. And for someone like Tim Canova with a lot of name recognition among the progressive community to do this, it shows the Democratic Party establishment that we're not playing games. If you're not going to play fair and allow us to run within your party under the Democratic Party's umbrella, then guess what? We're going to run as independents, and we're going to take more votes away from you. And you can't blame us if the Democrat ultimately goes on to lose because we ran as an independent, because we tried to be fair, we tried to run under your party, and the Democratic Party's umbrella, but you don't want us. So what What else do we have to do? There's no choice left for us. So look, at the end of the day, if the establishment is going to play dirty, then it's time we do too. Progressives are done playing your game. We're done. If you're not going to allow us to run and win in fair races, then we're not going to support the Democratic Party any longer. 
And look, it's not like we're even asking them to uh, stack the deck in favor of progressives. All we're asking is for fair fights. If we lose fair and square to establishment Democrats, then we lose fair and square. We'll accept the results, but we're not losing fair and square. The Democratic Party establishment, the DNC, the DCCC, they're stacking the deck against progressives across the country. Now, look, if it's the case in this situation, because I've already seen some complaints, um, lobbed against Tim Canova that, oh, you're gonna spoil this election and, you know, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is gonna lose and it's gonna open the door to a Republican winning. If we lose Debbie Wasserman Schultz to a Republican, oops, who cares? She sides with Republicans a lot of the time anyway. She's corrupt. She should have resigned in shame to begin with. So if Debbie Wasserman Schultz loses because Tim Canova, quote, spoils this election, then, um, you know what? That's the Democratic Party's own fault for shutting out progressives. And maybe they should learn from this uh, that they shouldn't shut out progressives from the process. They shouldn't. If you run fair primaries and you give progressives a fair chance and you don't tip the, the scales against us, then we wouldn't have to do this. So um, I'm not saying that this is something that progressives should do in every district, but certainly in this district with a congresswoman as corrupt as Debbie Wasserman Schultz, do it. Run as an independent. And if she loses, she loses. Who cares? It's Debbie Wasserman Schultz. It's not that big of a loss. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Hillary Clinton's trip to India, specifically comments that she made about the 2016 election that were pretty pretentious. She claimed that she only won the areas of the country that were forward thinking, whereas Donald Trump won the areas of the country where there's a bunch of people that are just racist. Now, I already told you my thoughts on that. So if you want to hear what I had to say, you can watch the video. I'll link to it down below. But after she received a lot of backlash for those comments, expectedly so, well, she decided to fire back at her critics. And essentially, she said that anyone who disagreed with her and told her to shut up and go away, they're just sexist. <laughs> <laughs> is anyone surprised by this? I'm not, because identity politics is the only tactic she uses to fire back at critics. But nonetheless, this is what she had to say. I was really struck by... Um how people said that to me, you know, mostly people in the press, um, for whatever reason, like, oh, you know, go away, go away. And I, I had a, uh, one of the young people who works for me go back and do a bit of uh, research. They never said that to any man who was not elected. Now, this was during a talk she had at Rutgers. Now, that comment right there drew the most criticism, and this is really what we've come to expect from Hillary Clinton and neoliberal Democrats. If they don't have a legitimate response to your argument, well, they pivot to identity politics and say, well, you simply disagree with me, and you're telling me to shut up and go away because you're sexist or homophobic. And this is the same tactic we see from the Israeli government. When we criticize war crimes and their illegal occupation of Palestine, what do they do? They tell us that we're anti-Semitic. So this is the same neoliberal tactic. If you don't have a legitimate response, this is what you have to do. Those of us with legitimate arguments don't have to pivot to identity politics because our arguments are strong enough themselves. But I actually don't want to only focus on her sexism comments because she actually did a pretty thoughtful critique of the Republican Party. Everything that she said here essentially was correct. The problem is that what she said 
was pretty ironic because her diagnosis of the main problems within the Republican Party is also applicable to the Democratic Party as well. Both parties have their faults. I will, I will premise what I'm about to say. And we can all do better. And I can certainly do better. I mean, obviously, in the heat of battle and political back and forth, I've said things that, you know, I, I would like to take back. We all are like that. But I do worry that what's happened to the Republican Party is that it's being held captive by a very small group of powerful forces. We have seen the power of the NRA, for example, and some of the very wealthy uh, patrons of the Republican Party are so demanding. If you, if you deviate from their stated requests, they will fund somebody to run against you in a Republican primary. They will dry up your money. They will make it really difficult. Now, I would still like to see some Republicans stand up and say, go ahead and try it and defend themselves. Um, but I understand, I understand how intense the partisanship is within the Republican Party so that you worry about somebody on your far right uh, coming in to try to defeat you in the primary and you end up kind of going along uh, and wondering what you can do in the future. And the only way to remedy that is to make it very clear we are just not going to accept that kind of uh, politics. You know, I was the first person to run for president who had to deal with both Citizens United and the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. So with Citizens United, it was all bets are off, more money than we've ever seen, and being spent in ways we still to this day don't know. I mean, the NRA spent more money against me than they've ever spent against anybody. And all these other groups were just pumping it out because with the Citizens United decision, we can't stop it and we can't even follow it and we often don't even know after the fact. And then the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted, opened the door to voter suppression like we haven't seen in 50 years. And so people are being turned away from the polls because they don't have the exact right ID, although they bring everything else they possibly can bring. And they're being purged from voting rolls because maybe they haven't voted in a year or two. And now, if things don't look like they'll go your way, you've got a governor in Wisconsin trying to stop elections. So the, the problems are deep. And they are ones that if we don't address, regardless of party, that's why we, I, I'm, so, I'm so missing John McCain's voice uh, right now, because you can disagree with John, but he will stand up for democratic values and democratic institutions. And other Republicans who have spoken out are retiring. They're leaving right here in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania and in states across America. They're leaving because they know they will be shown no understanding by the hard right and the money that funds it. So I'll give her credit for admitting that 
both parties <laughs> have problems. But Hillary, by saying both parties have problems and then going on to explain that Republicans have this specific problem with donors, you're implying that Democrats don't also have this issue. I mean, think about her criticism. She states here, the Republican Party is being held captive by a very small group of powerful forces. Who does that sound like to you? Also, the Democratic Party as well. She also said here, some of the very wealthy patrons of the Republican Party are so demanding, if you deviate from their stated requests, they will fund somebody to run against you in a Republican primary. Right, that's technically true, but Hillary, isn't this also true for the Democratic Party as well? Let's say, hypothetically speaking, that someone in the Democratic Party wanted to shirk their donors in the health insurance industry, and after taking tens of thousands of dollars from health insurance companies, they decided to endorse Medicare for All. Do you not think that those health insurers would be equally demanding of the Democratic Party? There's a reason why companies like Cigna and Aetna are spending thousands upon thousands of dollars on anti-Medicare for all Democrats is because they want to keep the status quo. So you can state that the Republican Party's donors are certainly demanding, but that's also equally true with regard to the Democratic Party's donors as well. She also states here, I was the first person who had to run for president who had to deal with both Citizens United and the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. So with Citizens United, it was all bets are off with more money being spent than we've ever seen. The NRA spent more money against me than we they've ever spent against anybody. And with Citizens United, we can't stop it and we can't even follow it and we don't even know after the fact. Now what she's saying here is probably the most ironic and hypocritical of anything she said. Because even though she's trying to paint herself as the victim... She's not the victim. She actually raised more than a billion dollars for her 2016 presidential campaign. And according to the New York Times, outside money favored her over Donald Trump by a two to one margin. And she actually maintained a three to one spending edge over Donald Trump when it comes to television ads ran in swing states. Not to mention, she also raised millions upon millions of dollars from super PACs. That's dark money. So she's talking about here how, oh, you know, you can't trace this money since Citizens United. Well, she still benefited from Citizens United. She did. So, I mean, I find everything she's saying here so hypocritical, and she can't even realize how ironic all her criticisms of the Republican Party are. Now, she also states here, and then the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted, opened the door to voter suppression like we haven't seen in 50 years. And so people are being turned away from the polls because they don't have the exact right ID and they're being purged from the voting rolls. And now if things don't go your way, you've got a governor in Wisconsin trying to stop elections. And again, she doesn't realize her own faults here. And the irony of what she's saying she won the Democratic Party primary because the DNC resorted to voter suppression tactics. How many state Democratic parties shut out independents from Democratic Party primaries because they weren't registered in time as Democrats? She talks about uh, voters being purged from the rolls. Well, between 117 to 200,000 voters were purged in New York, illegally so. She had nothing to say about that. And they were purged in a pro-Bernie district. Now, certainly, this could have been accidental. But if she cares about voters being purged from the voting rolls, wouldn't she at least denounce what happened in New York? 
And additionally, her campaign, with the help of the mainstream media, inflated their pledged delegate lead by counting superdelegates that hadn't even voted yet. And superdelegates, generally speaking, is a way to brazenly rig elections if things, quote, don't go your way. So I find everything that she's saying here so nauseating and infuriating because she says all this about the Republican Party, and is it true? Yes, absolutely. But she doesn't realize that the same thing she's saying about the Republican Party is also applicable to Democrats, hence why she lost. It's because the Democratic Party is just as corrupt as the Republican Party. The difference is that they've been corrupted by different types of donors and different types of billionaires. So I find this so frustrating, and that's really the problem with Democrats. They continuously denounce the Republican Party's right-wing billionaire funders, and I'm glad that they do that. But if you're going to denounce them... You also have to walk the walk yourself and denounce the Democratic Party's donors as well. But this is why Hillary Clinton lost and why the Democratic Party establishment is even less popular today than they were when Hillary Clinton was running. It's because they refuse to have any sort of introspection whatsoever. They refuse to see the legitimate grievances that voters have with them. All you have to do when you're talking about Republicans is look in the mirror, because if you see the problem with Republicans and don't see how the same issues plague the Democratic Party, then I don't know what to tell you. You're just lost. Well, that's all I got for you guys. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode, I want to send a special thank you again to everyone who watched and another shout out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors because you guys help the show not only to survive, but thrive as well. Thank you all so much. Uh, I'll see you next week. Take care.